Welcome everyone to Fresh Pulp Magazine's Dark Matters Podcast. I am Jay Austin Yoshino. I am your host, and this is the amazing and talented Marguerite Hill. She is my co-host. Marguerite is also the co-founder and executive director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. They do anti-racism competency training. I have taken the training, and it rocks. Uh, they are also the co-sponsors of this podcast. So feel free, please, to go and check out their social media. Go and check out their presence on Instagram and on Twitter. They've got great, great messages to impart to all of us. Um, also, feel free to, um, you know, drop some ducats in the old coffers for Most Mark. But also, feel free to drop some ducats in the coffers for Fresh Pulp Magazine. We have a tip button on our Twitter page. It enables all of this splendid technology it enables um all of our efforts you know as as low um low budget as they are it helps every bit helps so welcome marguerite thank you for it's good having to see you. me great to partner once again excellent so you know the one thing i didn't ask you before we started was what do we want to start with in terms of um you know the science. You know, like, do we want to do the science roundup, a traditional science roundup, or do we want to go with? Um, do we want to talk about like Oppenheimer? I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but I, I have some comments about it. Yeah, maybe let's do a little pop culture and then go to a little hard science, and then we go into foundation. Okay, what did you have in mind for um, for pop culture? Because you mean Oppenheimer. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So I haven't seen it yet. Haven't seen Barbie or Oppenheimer yet. Um, but I have seen some really thoughtful discourse coming from our Native American kindred, highlighting the impact of the bomb on Native American people, individuals, and their lives. And that's been very powerful. Um, do you have any um, anything that you'd like to share specifically about that? Um, in some ways, like in in the discussions, are um, been thoughtful engagement um, and some pushback, right? Where they talked about well, there's some from the Jewish community highlighting his Jewishness, um, where um, and so since I haven't seen that, I can't really speak on the challenges right or or what was missing in that um at the same time um some of the discussions around jewish identity has been kind of interesting where i've seen one person i can't remember their name were saying that jewishness and whiteness had nothing in common to the late 90s which is not quite accurate we know around the time mid-century couple decades into that right that um where um, the uh, Jewish community, like where where they were kind of allowed to um, be white, right? And so there's, you know, I think that's like that discussion as far as they had quotas back then. And so that did impact Oppenheimer's um, life. And, um, and then I think around the time of um, the 50s and 60s, you know, I mean, those those quotas and that, you know, those are things that they're, they're not impacted by. So um, I actually wrote a short article around Jews and black communities 
and um, I touched upon redlining and so there are some historical aspects of the pathway to whiteness is really built on anti-blackness so I think that's really important um, so the other part is that um, when we think about um, the pathway to whiteness or or the ways that communities who are marginalized navigate white supremacy often it is at the expense of another community so that could be in engaging in settler colonialism or anti-blackness so in this case right that claim to fame right is harming native americans who had who should have given sovereignty and have been safe from these um you know the dangers of a nuclear weapon and nuclear testing but um that pathway to this kind of fame was in in both harming and poisoning Native Americans. So I think that's a kind of powerful racial justice analysis that we need, you know, and we definitely need to read more um, of our indigenous and native folks and, and their critiques of the film, just as we should read um, critical Jewish studies to understand um, the role that um, in white supremacy, it's also navigating America's foreign wars, right? And so being able to produce this bomb that was dropped on on Japanese people, that's also another powerful thing. We're not getting their stories. So let's, so let me, okay, I 100% agree with you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a, <laughs> the, the, the thing that, that, that I, that I'm, I'm not going to completely address, address this from the point of anti-Jewishness, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to, um, because you can't obfuscate ultimately what looks like an atrocious act behind your race whatever race you are like if that person were black and they were like let's nuke 200,000 Japanese people I'm gonna be like okay dude right that's not really how we how we roll so I, I and, and I think that so I'm not really going to address it in that context I'm going to address it in the context of what happened at the time so I'm going to say this I'm going to drop some some statistics, some statistics and there's a great thread on Twitter by Alyssa um, Valdez who talks about this the Trinity test site at the time of the, of the of the nuclear testing, the Trinity test site was home to more than 200,000 people. 150,000 people were were uh, were were cleared from the land. Okay, they were displaced. 150 to 190,000 people. They were paid seven dollars an acre for their land, which even by 1941 standards is ridiculous. Okay, um, so they displaced 140,000 people, and that is not just Hispanics, homesteaders. It also includes. Um, it also includes uh, Pueblo Indians and Apache. Okay, so indigenous people. Um, once those people were displaced, then the army and Oppenheimer, and by the way, they were displaced by force. Okay, they were sent a notice and then they were cleared from their land. And, and the notice was in English, not Spanish. So once the um, they were displaced, they the people who were displaced now didn't have their homesteads, they needed jobs. So they were hired as workers at Los Alamos and at the training test site usually cleaning up nuclear radioactive waste in that 100 mile area around the trinity test site the people who were there or remained or returned took in 10,000 times the nuclear radioactivity that it's allowable for human beings so i think that's important for us to say that the other thing that i want to mention is that these people who we frequently laud as geniuses okay they're not geniuses. They're very smart and they're very committed to their craft. Okay, 
nobody disputes that Oppenheimer made massive contribution to high energy physics and particle physics. But if these people are truly geniuses, Nils Bohr's, Michael Merriman's, you know, um, uh, uh, who's the other guy? Richard Feynman's, okay? They would have found a way to do this without disenfranchising 200,000 people, right? That, to me, is the true mark of a genius, right? If you if you are able to exercise your abil- your skills and your abilities, your quote-unquote genius, without any of the moral interrogation, then it's not really genius. It's just you're doing something that comes kind of easy to you, and you're doing it well, or you're just good at it, okay? Now, I'm going to pause for a second, sorry. So, other half of this, okay? 210,000 people annihilated in an instant between Nagasaki and Hiroshima, okay? So this idea of a, of a tortured genius, we have to do away with this tortured genius nonsense, okay? You murdered a quarter million people that didn't need to be. On top of that, another 160,000 people perished as a result of burns, radiation, and, and other injuries from the bomb over the course of the next six months. Over the course of the next 70 years, it's expected that there are millions of cases of cancer and other related illnesses, neurological um, impairment, um, birth defects, as a result of us dropping the bomb of those two places. So you're talking about millions of people. So I think I, as the numbers go, I just wanted to lay some flat numbers out there before we waded into sort of more racial dynamics, ethnic dynamics. Thank you. And, and it's real, real people. So my, um, a really good family friend, Masako, she was a little girl um, during the bomb and she lost all her hair. So, I mean, it's like, and eventually, I mean, her life was shortened by, you know, by that exposure. So these are real people that we're talking about. And when we speak to Japanese Americans, some of them, um, like one of my friends, um, Tracy, her um, grandfather who happened to be here, his whole family, like her whole family was, the rest of her family was wiped out. So um, it's important that we attach people. They're not just casualties. They're not just statistics. These are all lives and potential, just as much genius potentials to cure cancer, uh, you know, address world hunger, or just love and hope just as much as any of us. Yes, that is very very well stated um and the thing is and we, we we talk about this very often um on this show which is this this need to to lionize people despite their failings okay and, and i think that there's nothing wrong with critically and realistically looking at the legacy of a person and saying hey look you know where was all the moralizing when it came to the lives of brown people or the people of color right um <laughs> And that, that, that is the part that I, that I want to address between us. It's like, I want people to understand that, okay, we made, we made a movie. I also want people to understand where the message is coming from, okay? The Department of Defense gives $120 million a year to Hollywood, okay? The rest of the federal government gives probably around $3.4 billion a year. And then you're talking about an associated state-to-state costs of between 5 and $8 billion a year go directly into Hollywood. So you have to ask yourself, what is the, the agenda? What is the message? What are you trying to tell me? What is it that you want me to believe? Definitely. Even to get the sound for certain equipment that the military will clear the script or change the script. Um, so their impact on filmmaking is really powerful. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Um, 
but I also also you know this is I can't I can't escape this part. I I love Cillian Murphy. I I love the guy. Right. I li- I like his I like the work that he does. Um, and I think in general he's actually a very thoughtful person. Um, and I'm not going to ding him over his choices in this role, but. If you look at the side by pick side by side picture of Oppenheimer and Slane Murphy, do you know what I mean? Like that plays into it, right? You get, you know, Oppenheimer who is, you know, okay, he's not a bad looking guy, he's average looking dude for nineteen forty, right? But then you get Slane Murphy, right, with the rings of grey and the you know, the the big blue eyes and the high cheekbones and you're you, you, you forget what it is that you're watching. Like that's part of you know, that's part of the myth of Hollywood is that it is a propaganda machine and that part of that propaganda is looking at things that are be- not just Elaine Murphy, but the, the films are beautifully made and they're beautifully made for a reason because they want you to, you know, anyway, I'm not going to get too conspiratorial. But, yes, I think that that's like part of it. Definitely. So did we want so now do we want to talk about? OK, unless you have something. Oh, I want to say something else. I'm sorry. There's one part that I forgot to mention, and there is so de- definitely check out Alyssa Valdez's um, um, uh, um, uh, her her Twitter link. I'm mean, here Twitter uh, uh, thread. Just look her up by name. But there's also a woman named Maria Gomez who wrote a book called Nuclear Nuevo Mexico, and it's all about basically the other side of the Trinity test site Oppenheimer story. Um, there's also a there is a site called. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a site called The Other Side of Oppenheimer, The Oppenheimer Story. If you just type that in, you're going to find that there's an, a, a site run by indigenous groups that talk uh, that there are lots of documentation, little mini documentaries about their fight with the government over the, dis- the destruction and dispossession of their land. Um, I want to add another small little tidbit, which is this. Currently, there are 14 telescopes in the United States alone built on indigenous sacred land 14 all right the most recent one being in hawaii and i think they're going to build another one in hawaii but people don't really mention the other 13 there are 14 at some point maybe i'll make a TikTok and i'll outline all of them but i wanted to mention that i think that's so important to to highlight how consistently our government um violates Native American and indigenous sovereignty for their own purposes. And, you know, and even though we may wonder at the stars and how amazing that they are, I mean, at what cost are we gazing at, you know, at those stars and for what purpose, you know, and obviously for what purposes are curiosity, but it's also just, you know, continually harming indigenous and native communities. Well said. And I 100% agree. So I'm going to move on, move on from Oppenheimer. We're going to talk briefly about, um, did you want to talk about the, so let's talk about the black holes. Cause we, we've been putting that story off for a couple of weeks. <sighs> I, I want to talk about dark matter. So there are two separate stories, but they're kind of related. One is that is about, um, is how they're, they are theorizing now that dark matter comprises a large part of black holes. Um, but then there's also, the measure, measuring of, they've made some more progress with LIGO, which is the measuring of gravitational waves. So, or, or measuring gravity, but I'll say gravitational waves. Any thoughts on that? I mean, what, I would love for you to explain to our audiences, one, what is dark matter? 
and then to break down the gravitational waves. So obviously with dark matter, I'm very interested in it, but I can't explain it in layman's terms. I kind of go into, and with black holes, they, they fill me with existential dread that there may be one near us and we're just gonna get swooped in right away. And how, you know, how would we even know, right? If we get pulled right. into it, because once we're in it, we're in it, right? So right. just deep, fascinating stuff. So, but I, I feel like my mind, it moves faster than what I can articulate. And I just get tripped <laughs> up in those words. Um, so, but you do such a great job. So, okay. So dark matter. And by the way, I want to remind people, I'm not a scientist, but I do read a lot about this. And I try to, to, to put a lot of this stuff into my writing, but dark matter basically is non-luminous material. Right, it is material that that most things in the universe they have a, a a a reflection frequency. Right, you can tell what you know what things are by the way that certain lights reflect off of them. And um, dark matter simply doesn't have that that attribute. And and it and some uh, it's it can take several forms. They say like you know weakly interacting particles or high energy random moving particles right but the, the bottom line is is that it's not um it's not something that we can see simply by by its luminosity right or, or detect it's believed that dark matter comprises about 85 to 90 percent of the universe so and that's important um but it also kind of feeds into what we talked about with regards to black holes because black holes they're starting to realize are not actually what we always think they are um but it does feed into the fact that that a black hole is a singularity and that a singularity cannot necessarily be perceived by light. It can be perceived by things like the ejection of x-rays on the other side or accretion disk, which is basically um, all of the, the matter around it being churned at such a high speed that it begins to heat up and creates light. Um, but having said that, dark matter, they say, may comprise a big part of what black holes are. For the purposes of this story, which is about gravitational waves, it's a big deal to me because I, a, a lot of my stories hinge upon, not a lot, but a few of my stories hinge upon this idea that human beings have begun to harness the power of gravity. And one of the reasons why that's significant is because so far, the ability to measure gravity in any real like waveform, wave function way has eluded us. And, and I think that if you look back at things like radio waves or lasers or stuff, we first had to know of their existence before we could measure them. And once we could measure them, we could manipulate them. And so that's exciting to me because I'm like, so if we can actually create a kind of gravitational waveform, we can actually start to see what things influence gravity locally, regionally, on a larger scale. You know, how's that going to affect relativity? Can we create anti-gravity? Can we create gravity drives? Can we travel to distant? Because that's the real, aside from like things like air and like, you know, zero gravity, gravity itself is one of the major, I think, linchpins of interstellar travel. If you can figure out how to manipulate that and maybe even negate some of its effects, you can probably propel a ship at much greater speeds. So that's kind of why I'm excited. I may be totally off, by the way. Like NDT may get up here and be like, dude, you, you were just wrong, dude. You know, but <laughs> I'm running, I'm, I'm rolling it out like that. So. I don't know if, if that explanation helps anyone, but I want your thoughts on it. I mean, it, it helps me as, as a lay person who has like my scientific 
exploration has, has atrophied greatly, but I'm going to uh, start listening to more podcasts. I, I'm trying to, I'm going to try to get smarter. But every time I talk with you, my IQ jumps up two points. You know, so it's like I, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to get up there. Um, you know, Likewise. watching. Watching reality television, I lost a lot. I lost a lot of brain cells there. Um, and other things, other things too that affected my memory. But with, with, with this, you know, the, the, the idea of being able to understand the basic um, forces of physics, right? The basic things like, you know, we have like gravity, right? We have like, you know, strong attraction, right? Like the, so that's like really interesting to me. It's like the, the um, positive negative energy, there's like the strong atomic force and weak atomic force. So, so these are all things that I'm, I'm like when, when I fell in love with science, like when, when I was in elementary school, middle school and high school um, and, and understanding that what we can perceive our eyesight is only a tiny sliver on the electromagnetic spectrum that we can perceive and that's how we understand our grand universe and knowing that there's so much out there that our bodies our eyesight can't possibly understand so then how do we know like we know what we know right um but we don't know what we don't know right so being that our bodies and minds don't perceive that even the machines that we're calibrating they're based on what we know that's out there that we observe through our eyes. So this idea of the gravitational wave and that if we like that when we are able to discover something, then we can manipulate it. But there's still even with that because we can feel gravity, right? Like that's like we could feel it. But what about all those other things, those other forces, just like dark energy, dark matter um, that we can't ever possibly perceive can we develop the mechanisms with whether it's with machine learning to understand the unseen universe because our eyes are really adapted for a world where i mean even like how we get to our world basically our world is we're living off of the um pollution of plants you know and like how that's effect affected the world so I think what we know is so limited and it just makes a whole universe of wonder to me and seeing the kind of the edges of of that with the gravitational waves or what we understand about dark energy is just fantastic. I'm sure there's some um, there is some creature in the universe that can see a lit up universe and see, perceive and feel, understand and possibly manipulate dark energy and dark matter. It's not luminous to us, but it's luminous to them. Oh, you're on mute. Sorry, I muted myself because there was like a baby upstairs playing piano. Um, so I, I wanted to throw in there too that um, so like uh, gravity is is you know nine point nine eight meters per second squared and when you think about so so think about this time if you look at if you watch the show for example the expanse everything is in terms of 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 like achieving one g 
you know, speed, velocity. So just as an example, achieving 1G, 1 to 2G velocity or, or speed for a craft would reduce our time to Mars from seven months to six days. So think about how rapidly you could, and, and, that's not, and that's not even accounting for like the Holman exchange, which is when Mars and Earth are next to each other in their orbit. Like that's like, you could get, you could get to the other parts of the planet very rapidly if you could find a way to manipulate or ride on like gravitational eddies or something. Anyway, that's why I'm excited because I'm like, yeah, will it become a practical, will there be practical use in my lifetime? Maybe because it's accelerating so quickly. But I also wanted to throw in there that there are two, there are at least two installations and I think more coming, Li- LIGO installations. I forget what LIGO stands for. I think it's like, um, you know, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to tell you. Sorry. Um, as I was reading about this yesterday, um, but laser interfer- interferometer gravitational wave observatory. So they actually detect these waves, and I think they came from a black hole. But they detect these waves because they pass through the Earth, and the LIGO can detect it. They they have this filament or this laser that extends like four kilometers, like it's really long. So they're building one in Japan, and they think that when they have they have two, that they can not only verify the results with each other. They're like, hey, did you did you detect that? And they're like, yes, we did. Um, so. But also because of their location, right, you can tell kind of which direction the wave is traveling in. So I think when they build more of these, the science will start to become more and more, um, what's the word, developed, mature, evolved. So, so yes, uh, I'm very happy to talk with nerd stuff with you. Um, but I'm so, we also have to talk. I'm so excited. Go ahead. One, but one more thing, one more sure, thing that ahead. we haven't talked about. And I haven't been able to follow it, but I wanted to know, are you following the government, um, what is it, that summit, or is there some, something about the government admitting that there's UFOs? Is that true? Can we do a Snopes of this? <laughs> okay, so I, 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 here's the thing about, here is the thing about UFOs. There is no information or sources on it that can be considered reliable. The government says one thing, the public says another, SETI says something else, and there's lots of conjecture and speculation in between, which really muddies the waters. And so what I have determined is I have determined to formulate my, postulate my own theories, which is the best that I can do. Part of what I believe about aliens and UFOs is, is predicated upon this idea of the Drake equation, which is an equation that said, that, that, that postulates the number of potential species in a galaxy based upon its size and 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 the relative you know like evolution of humans like so the, what, what is the likelihood that there will be a an evolutionary event like the creation of human beings in a given region of space it's been i don't think say, say it's re- been roundly refuted but it's been viewed as somewhat inaccurate but it's still it's still a starting point meaning it's not zero um now having said that looking at these crashes and you know oh this guy who major grush who's supposedly like a an alien retrieval you know okay look here's something you got to understand about aliens visiting the earth okay the nearest potentially habitable planet for humans is at least eight light years away from us okay which means that whatever species would come here would have to have mastered fast and light travel or be on a generation ship and i gotta tell you if they're on a generation ship they're not gonna bother with us they're gonna be like dude we spent like 18 generations getting here and we use a laser as propulsion. Like, why would we bother with these people? They're so violent and dumb. And I know that's not terribly original <laughs> assertion about human beings, but it's true. We're destroying our own planet. Now, 
let's assume that they have faster than light travel. That ship has to be strong enough to endure the rigors of interstellar travel. Traveling through space, like normal space, with all the micrometeoroids and all the other stuff, that by itself is extremely hazardous for human beings, right? That Like one micrometeoroid can destroy your entire ship. And when I say micrometeoroid, I mean something like the grain of sand, right, hits your hull that size, and you're traveling at 26,000 miles per hour, it's going to blow a hole in your hull the size of your head, right? So imagine a whole field of those, right? So because their 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 destructive power is mag is 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 increased by their velocity and your velocity, right? So now these aliens would have to have a ship that is strong enough to withstand that, or a technology to repel, like you know, a force field. An Alcubierre drive would probably do that, but I, I I'm not going to assume that they're using human technology. The other thing is. The ship, if it's not traveling in normal space, has to be sufficiently durable to to endure the stresses of space-time compression, right? Like, part of your ship is here, right? And the other part of your ship is, like, for a brief instant, is, like, 300,000 kilometers. You know what I mean? It's, like, a really great, you know, it, it's... Traveling through a singularity is probably... They probably have to have some technology to counteract those effects. So what you're telling me is these people got into a wormhole traveled all the way to our system only to crash right <laughs> yeah you're telling me that their technology aside from the fact that it should it would probably be able to withstand a crash right and then all these crashes that are happening inside american territory the u.s soil only comprises 1.87 percent of the total landmass of the earth and you're telling me that out of all the other 98 percent these alien craft keep crashing in the U.S., right, or in territories that we control. So, to me, the mathematical probability that there are is, is it is it likely that there are aliens? It's possible that there are actually aliens flying around. Are they crashing on in in the United States? No, they're probably not, right? In, unless, like, someone asked me this question two days ago, and I said, unless they're coming to, to if, unless they're looking for bad fast food, and like, and racism they're probably not going to be in the U.S. Like, they're not going to be like, let's go to the U.S. and get a burger and, like, get beat up by Nazis. Um, <laughs> get some, um, you know, really bad, like, um, chili. And, like, because, I mean, it's always in this, these random places, the U.S., too, like, uninteresting places where they would not likely crash, you know? So, right. so very, very interesting. I mean, more likely than not, the unidentified flying objects are kind of spy planes, you know, like the things that we saw floating, you know, um, from China and, but also our own, you know, like weather, weather balloons, um, different technologies that our government is yes. testing out. So and I mean, that makes a lot more yes. sense. Mm -hmm. Sorry. There, there's a guy that, that people should look up named Michio Kaku who talked about this in the documentary. And I think he even studied it at Old Dominion University. And he talked about how, Americans have developed force field technology, um, hmm. but it's they, they haven't been able to make it pers at that time, which was like 15 years ago. They hadn't they hadn't been able to create a persistent field, but that may have changed, right? Because you haven't heard anything else about it, right? And the interesting thing about this field is it not only completely it's it's completely impervious, like it's indestructible, right? But not only is it impervious, but it's impervious to all forms of kinetic and light energy. So to to encompass a craft in this would make the craft basically invisible, right? So, like, even, mm -hmm. like, the visual light spectrum 
you know, you'd be like, wait, where is this thing? So I think that that's possible that they figured something out, like, cause we're obviously working on that technology and it would be like eighth generation, like stealth fighter. You wouldn't wow. even need to launch missiles. Okay. You could just ram stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, this is so exciting. This is like my, like, I can't even imagine this acted out. Like I, I would have to see it like drawn. I'd have to see it animated um, to really right. understand, but I'm I'm just waiting for that force field, you know, kind of like the invisible cloak, well, the, so you could right. kind of go through. So, which I think right. that Muslims, we would definitely advance that. I was I was having some like Muslimish dreams, like very do like kind of like around gender and and some of these debates, um, you know, last night. And so I was, you know, I always thought about like, you know, there's a there's a lot of folks, you know, who in, in their conservatism feel that women should not be in public spaces and be seen. Mm. And so then I was like, that would be the purpose of the invisibility cloak. Oh, but would that right. invisibility cloak be problematic for them? Because then we as women could move undetected in spaces where men are and understand what they're up to. So, yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm just thinking about those kind of um subversive ways to use invisibility cloak but also you know i mean there are some good ways that women could uh, maintain bodily autonomy through dressing modestly or or you know being beyond you know like wearing niqab but the ultimate niqab or purda would be this invisibility cloak so we'd be able to like perform (laughs) perform pilgrimage without sexual harassment you know like do all our things so it's gonna be amazing (laughs) yes the, the 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 cloaking device niqab i actually i think there's a story there there's a story there yeah um, yeah oh you know i so mean there's gonna be people try to do it but um you know i'll throw my my little spin on it <laughs> oh yeah no that's great so like so that and that actually kind of feeds into what we have to talk about next which is foundation because you know empire uses an aura right he has mm-hmm. a he has a personal shield even though it's not detectable he has a personal shield so I thought we could start talking about that a little bit. Um, Empire. I, I, I dig the I dig the Nikabi cloak. Like that's such a like if you look at um, Ghost in the Shell though, Ghost in the Shell actually she uses a a cloak and it's like it covers her face and everything. Like that would be like if you don't write it, I will. I, I'm going to talk to you after the show because I like okay. I feel like something great there. Um, Nikabi and it's also I think kinda, you, need it, like, it's, it. Become, you need to do it. You need to do it. You need to do it. Yeah. Uh, so let me do the beats real quick for foundation which i have to admit like for a for shows that are only like nine or ten episodes long you should never have any filler episode and i feel like this was a lot there's a lot of filler for this episode but basically um gail and salvor when they when they the the, sh- the show opens this week they are um on their way to uh ignis which is the planet that they discovered um that they have to go to um, but they go, and Harry sets them down. Um, he uses the AI to set them down on the planet, and he's like, "We have to go to this mining place." And they're like, "Wait, where is this? This is, this is there's like no people here. There's like very little any water." And he was like, "Oh yeah, because this is not Ignis. It's and I forget the name of the planet that he said it was." And they were like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, you know, it's not just some capricious detour, but we need to go. So we need to hike 500 meters in that direction." So they leave they're obviously annoyed that harry once again kind of didn't tell them the whole story and they start walking meanwhile um meanwhile um 
um, Empire is uh, not Empire, but um, Demerzel, the the robot, the android. She is going to this planet to find Bell Rios, who is the general that that was mentioned in the last episode that defied Empire, and he was imprisoned um, and his husband killed. So she goes to the prison. He's on the prison planet. It's a terrible place. He's like trying to help this old guy who gets killed, which is not really material to the story. And she's like, you know, we want to, we want you to come back and be a general again. And he's like, you know, you need to free everybody in this damn prison camp if you want me to come and just talk to you about that. And she's like, no, but we'll give you certain concessions. So he goes to like to um, to join her. He agrees basically to go. He t- she tells him that hey, look, if you come and work for us again. We reunite you with your husband. And by the way, he's not actually dead. We made that up to like punish you. So he goes with them, goes to meet Empire. Empire is like, they have this exchange, and basically, um, Bell Rios is just cussing him out, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. He shows up. Like, she's like, you should get yourself together before we go see the Emperor. He's like, no, I'm going to go all dirty and nasty just like this so he can see what, I, you know, what he did to me. Anyway, so back on um, on this planet that's not Igneous Gale is taking Harry to this place they walk 500 meters it's actually longer than that another weird equivocation that he makes he's like it's 500 meters and it ends up being like really much longer than that but it's like a mining camp mm-hmm. mining place but there's like this big statue in this mountain they go in it and once they get to the actual like door of it there's a the woman named Calais who started this whole thing by the way Calais is like the, um, the mathematician who Gale's proofs proved were right she's in the cave in the mountain and like harry transfers himself into like some orb that she has and then the door closes and gail's like what the hell and she like leaves to go back to the ship that's why i say it's kind of fillery because it's like dude we really need to see all this anyway she goes back (laughs) to the ship and like salvor is like what happened and she's like dude he just like he ghosted like literally he ghosted like he digitally ghosted us and like Salvor's like, well, what would Harry do if he were in your shoes? And she's like, we, he would leave. And she's like, okay, so let's leave. So they get ready to leave. Back to these two red priests, right? Um, whose name I for, whose names again I forget because um, I'm not really sure. I, I really don't like them, so I can't really remember their names. <laughs> but they discover that so the the one one like older priest is like, we need to go find Hober Mallow. And as it turns out, they know who Hober Mallow is. Like they're debating like going to find him and like the council's like, no, you shouldn't be doing this. And like, he's like, look, man, we are being herded into doing this and we may as well just do it. So let's go do it. So he's like, and by the way, I have some contacts that say that Hober Mallow is on this, on this planet called Corel. And so they go, they leave to go to, to Corel. And he's like, it's, it, it sucks, but we have to go flash forward to Corel. And this guy, Hober Mallow, is basically trying to con the prelate of this planet out of this giant diamond, but gets caught. So when the two priests arrive, he's about to be executed. Um, going back to the Empire story, Bel Rios is like having this exchange with Empire, and, you know, basically, you know, Empire's like, hit me, and Bel Rios is like, no, because you're my emperor. And he's like, if you don't hit me, I'm going to have you killed. I'm going to have your husband killed. And Bell Rios is like, you're my, you're my, you're my emperor. And he's like, you're going to sacrifice your husband for like, you know, for this. And he was like, you're my emperor. And so he's like, okay. And then he leaves and like a door opens and his husband comes out and they start crying and like, you know, hugging and kissing and stuff, which I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts about that, by the way. Um, anyway, um, so he's like all grubby and stuff and his husband like cleans him up and cuts his hair and shaves him and everything. It was really, really tender and cool. Then um, going back to um, 
Corel, the two priests see that Hobermallo is about to be executed. They intervene, right? So he uses this really weird device that he was using earlier on, but it, which is not really important, but he escapes, gets on this craft, tries to steal their ship. They get there before he can steal it, knock him out, get on and like leave to go back to Terminus, right? So this guy, Hobermallow, is actually from Terminus. Like he's, and he's in the actual story, which I'll get into later on. They escape, going back to Salvor and Gale. They're about to take off. The ship falls through the through the ground. They manage to get the ship going, and they take off. And these giant machines, which were supposedly dormant, wake up and start like trying to kill them. And they're flying away. And as they're flying away, they see Harry, right, laying on on the statue, the hand, the statue with his hand outstretched. And Harry's like laying on the hand. And she's like, "We have to go get him," because it's like, I can sense him. And he's not a, he's not an AI. He's like a person. And she's like, wait, how's that possible? So they, like, grab him, and they manage to take off with him, and that's the end of that story for this episode. And so Bell Rios, the last scene with him was him basically rejoining his fleet and getting on his command ship, and everybody's, like, saluting him, and they get on their ships, and they, they, they space fold. So that's, you know, let me know if I miss anything. No, I think, I think you got that. I mean, we have the Noble General, we have the Rogue, um, you know, Consman Rogue, um, we have uh, AI turns to life, you know, all these things. Right. Even with the planet, those machines, like they were doing something and then they turned on the people and got rid of the people. But then, yes, that's right. So that was, that was the, um, the thing. So, so I've, I have some thoughts, thoughts on that. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, Please, this episode I kind of struggled with. Mm-hmm. with some of the the tone um because this this has not been quite a um you know like i mean some it, it's it's not a show that has a lot of humor in it <laughs> like so this was like the first time to have some humor so that was like oh that was not to say that you can't have a serious move you know a serious show without some jokes um i think that's also sometimes like helpful to show like that you know, people do have jokes or nerf but I, I just felt like, I don't know, somebody must have smoked a joint and got into the writer's room and just thought, like, threw that in there, and they probably should have just been checked to keep the tone. <laughs> like, you know, I was just like, come on, man, we're not, you know, like, I mean, why did they write Hover Mallow that way? I yes. Please. Don't understand. I wasn't expecting. I mean, I expected something like maybe an iconocla- iconoclast, but to be, um, you know, kind of a freebooter, a hipster, sexy hipster, trickster kind of guy that we see wasn't something. You know, like he's like the the bad college boyfriend of you know <laughs> that plays in a band. Yes. I just, like, I wasn't expecting that. Not my book, I'm just saying. It's just, like, that's an archetype, not, you know. No, I, I agree with you. I, 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 I'm not a big fan of the freebooter buccaneering sort of archetype because it's it's one of those things that it that too easily enables other aspects of the story without having to be explained. Um, mm-hmm. And the truth is that the char- the original Hober Mallow in the books is actually far more interesting. Right, he is kind of like he he's a he ends up being the mayor of Terminus, and he does get into a conflict with Corel, but not over past deeds, but over over, you know, and he actually ends up in the book outlawing banning the the priesthood, 
he ends up shutting it down mm-hmm. because he's like, we have to stop using technology to build a reliance with these people on us. And we have to stop using Kreese to sell that angle because it, it ends up happening in the book anyway. Corell ends up declaring war on Terminus and Hober Mallow wisely is like, nope, we're not going to engage with you, but we're not going to trade with you either. And over time, what happens is Corell, they capitulate because of their reliance on, on the technology that Terminus had, they capitulate without firing a shot. And um, and because of that, Hober Mallow becomes not only sort of a hero on Terminus, but also on Corell. So, and I thought that's really interesting. You have somebody who is not this, this like impulsive and, you know, not terribly smart, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, greedy, you know, buccaneer. You have a guy who's very thoughtful, strategic, and intelligent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that would have been really great, and and that would have just been like just good writing to kind of highlight like maybe how they had to extract him from this situation, and then you know, so so I'm I'm interested in his story arc, but the buccaneer part won't necessarily allow us. It kind of limits us to see we won't see that character growth um, or understand the kind of thinking, and and that's like the one thing that I found that was like very interesting in, in the foundation series is like that it did like because of those those long monologues where they're explaining their strategy or like they're either going back and explain like well this and this happened and you know but it's actually trying to explain like the strategy of of how they got through that crisis so i'm kind of like i think that they're doing it more for the action and the visual effects right. so this 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 episode also kind of got me on those visual effects. It was just like, okay, like, are we just like blowing the budget on CGI right now? Like, it's just like, it is just right. so over the top and um, and not always necessary. Like, do, like I, I like a judicious use of CGI, like when it makes sense, but not just for its own sake. You know, like the big mecha, I was just kind of like, do we need the giant robots? Right. So um, the space world effects in the first my... season were really cool, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I want to understand, you know, the the um, the the space fold, like the what what are those? Because they banned um, cyborg. So what is their what's her name? The blonde one who's Demerzel. Demerzel, like so they ban, like she's the last of her kind, right? That has held over, but there's these other other ones that are part of like when everything else goes into a fold then they're like go to sleep you know on the on the space fold so so i feel like there's some unknown aspects that you know because when they're having people go into the jumps like i'm trying to under like i was like i i gotta go and understand the physics of this universe that they're creating i'm a little bit lost here maybe i'm missing it but do i need um, to ndt up in here real quick (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just a little bit. So, like, found it. Oh. So, like, the, 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 like, that one woman, she, she, uh, she bends light, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. her name, and it's actually her function. So, you see these people who are genetically modified. They have, they're taller, they have longer limbs, they have thinner features, which has to do with basically zero, zero gravity existence, right? The, the, the absence of persistent gravity makes people elongate, essentially. That's the belief. But also, they're genetically um, modified to be able to withstand the rigors of space fold because it is supposedly a psychologically very taxing event and apparently when you open when you space folding which is really what it is it's not warping 
right? It's where you take two points in space and bring them together, and then you pass through that point, and then you're in the other space. But there is a belief that in creating that portal, you're not you're existing essentially in two places at once. Or if you are moving fast enough through quote unquote subspace, you're existing in all those places simultaneously, which is like it's it's enough to bend your brain. Which is what I mentioned earlier about space time compression, right? You're you're here your part of your ship is here and part of your ship is like some great distance away, but it's not really because the ship would break in half, right? But similarly, if you're compressing time and you're compressing space, everything that is outside of normal human perception is suddenly crammed into it. And I know that's like, again, you know, if Neil deGrasse or somebody else wants to get up in here and like be like, dude, you're just wrong. Great. I mean, I, that's just my understanding of the conceptual stuff that I've read. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that clarification. It's like being everywhere all at once, you know, like, and, and just like how that is something that, I mean, it does break people. Um, I mean, in some of the books that I read, so right. I wouldn't know about that. Yes. I mean, I've had, you know, and we could <laughs> say like, tell me about your experiences like, with space holding, Margaret. I know, <laughs> but there was a time I had a mystical experience and I thought I was everywhere all at once, or maybe something else happened. So, um, you know, and, and one day we'll, we'll kind of go into like the technologies and mysticism and, and tie that to sci-fi. So that'll be something like, I mean, I'll have to do a lot of homework um, mm. and, and probably, probably take, you know, I probably need to take a class and make sure I mastered this material. I understand the concepts <laughs> well, um, because, cause like, you know, the, the, um, you know, if you, if you get your, your, your theoretical sense you know, a, like if you get the theory a little bit off, then, you know, that universe, like, you know, it could, when you're, whether if you're writing it or imagining a show, it can take you out of the story, right? Or some people are like, wait, what? you know, like if they're really sharp, they're like, wait a minute, you know, it was like this in one case and then now it's doing this. So I, it, I think it it's can, really important. But that's understand. one of the reasons why I say theoretical. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm saying the theoretical, like instead of having just a speculative fiction like the theoretical fiction is not going to just throw smoke and mirrors up and be like oh this is how this happens but if there's like both the laws of the universe of this fiction stay consistent but it's also those laws of that universe is based on theoretical science like how we understand how exactly. space travel can occur right yes. if you have enough if you're able to harness enough energy because it's like you know it's like so those are the things it's not like a okay, it's like I'm pulling energy up from the ground. It's like, no, there would have to be some type of mechanism, some type of device that could make sense for that to happen and be yes. deployed or used in a way that would make sense. And so that takes an incredible amount of discipline for a writer to do. But at the same time, I think it, it can structure a story and, and ground you in, in some positive you know like in, in some good yes. ways and then allows us to then um as we're thinking about how we use technology now it allows us to imagine right like or be begin to innovate the use of technology and advances in ways that can make sense so you know and what i'm hoping is for that not to be militaristic agreed at the same so one point i wanted to touch upon was the noble general right you have this noble military guy can we talk about yes. that so before we jump into that i just want to say real quick i want to remind people that 
the objective of Fresh Pulp magazine is not to have a bunch of like equations and like diagrams and in, in, in stories. Theoretical science fiction is it still encourages people to make theoretical leaps, theoretical jumps, right? We theoretically understand how FTL or whatever should occur, like the conditions that have to occur in order for us to bend space. But but the problem with that is that we don't have the technology to actually bend space. So it's okay to be like, hey, this is how we bend space. Even if it's not completely accurate, you're making an intuitive leap, and that's fine. It doesn't need to be like, you know, anyway. So, Bell Rios. I, this is a part that I really wanted to talk about. And, like, okay. Do I? Do you want to start this part, or, or should I? I mean, is, does it feel like when they talk about, like, pink washing, or when you... You know, like when when we diversify the military, right? And and I'm sure. not saying that like that. You know, there aren't some Good pretty point. cool people in in the military who really believe in what they're doing. But it's like, you know, I mean, you have this empire that that I mean, this prison planet is really awful. You know, I mean, come on, like I mean, just the brutality that we saw, which is showing the 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 dark side of the empire and you know he goes like this and he's destroying planets so um he disobeys the emperor to do something that actually wins but still so but he still has this deep loyalty to to the empire and and in some ways that both what he suffers right and and in many aspects the humanizing aspect um is something that um, it kind of valorizes the military in this empire, right? And and is this something that we should, given like how corrupt this empire is, um, is this something that we should be valorizing? May I don't know. I'm a, I, I, I was a I agree little bit with that. I agree with the, the the what you what you call the pink washing element, but that wasn't the part that struck me entirely. Um, I agree with you. Like he, his, and, and I also suspect that he, even though he took an oath, his loyalty does come with conditions. And so, what mm -hmm. I felt this is this is my theory. He knew that he wasn't going to change anything being in prison, and he knew that he wasn't going to be able to protect the people that he cared for being in prison. Having having touched upon that, I agree with you. It's a kind of neoliberal sort of prevarication you know it's the lie you tell mm -hmm. yourself to make make it okay for you to go out and put a uniform on lead troops and kill a bunch of people yeah you know the ultimate right. they, they, they sacrifice for our freedoms and you're like so like they're invading Granada and Afghanistan right. for our freedom <laughs> yes. you know like it's like <laughs> I mean, we're going to be free, you know, not to say that, you know, because I don't necessarily believe in like isolationism um, while we're looking at atrocities, but I'm just like, you know, I mean, because we could have done some easy maneuvers to, to, to stop the Rwandan genocide, but we're just like, yeah, we're not dealing with that, you know? Right. So it's, um, you know, it's like they're making the ultimate sacrifice to secure our resources. Right. How would that look like? But I mean, I think that's important, you know, save our oil reserves, keep those prices low and, you know, <laughs> support the petro, you know, petrochemical conglomerations. That would make more sense to me. Um, 
than, you know, like some of the things of protecting our freedoms because Agreed. we don't really have anybody that's going to violate our um, our uh, freedoms at this point. Yeah, I mean, even, even once the... I want to interject this a little bit about that. You're right, and here's a bit of, of, of interesting factoid history. Post-Soviet era, once the United States got a hold of all their intelligence because it was being sold to us wholesale. They had a plan for the, for, in, for invasion of the United States. It was called Fortress America. And they concluded, their biggest military experts had concluded that it was untenable. There was no way to take and hold the United States. It was impossible. Too many guns. Too many farmers with shotguns. It was just... <laughs> seriously, it would just be like, you know, the, the population density of America is like nine people per square mile. And when half of those people have a gun... You know, yeah, it's that you're talking about taking massive losses before you even get off the coast, right? So pacifying those areas without destroying them would be impossible. Um, but I wanted to talk about Bell Rios as a gay man. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, there, it, we, as you mentioned, there is this kind of pinkwashing going on. But I will tell you that it was almost worth the trade-off. Because so many performances that you see in shows and televisions from 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 gay from gay LGBT folks is is overdone and hypersexualized, and mm -hmm. this person, to me, epitomized probably what modern and future male masculinity should look like, quote unquote, at mm -hmm. least it, on some level, because he was emotional, he was tender. He was thoughtful, but you didn't. Ha at no point was I like, do you know what I mean? And I'm not trying. I'm not trying to create an archetype. What I mean was that 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 I shouldn't say male masculinity should look like that. What I mean is that should be on the spectrum of of male masculinity amongst others, right? Because when he was when he first saw his husband for the first time, he was emotional. I mean, he cried like four or five times right in that show mm -hmm. and they did such a good job with these very brief scenes of building this intimacy between himself and his husband mm -hmm. and that became believable for me because i also was like i would follow you into battle you know not because he was like because he wasn't big you know he was tall he was short right it was because he was intense and he was thoughtful and he was consistent. The whole reason why Empire didn't kill him was because he looked him right in his face and was like, F you, you're this, this, and this, and this, but you're still my emperor. So mm -hmm. I, I really dug that, that portrayal of, of gay masculinity. I thought it was, it was some good writing. Yeah, I think it was some, some good writing. Um, but I guess maybe for me, like one of the things that did kind of make me kind of uncomfy because it was like even, I mean, the age difference was a little bit kind of, and so that power dynamic between like the age, I mean, you know, which, which it's like, okay. that's seen as okay. But I was just kind of like, oh, you know, like, I mean, I was like, how old was, you know, when he got with him, you know, like, so, so. So that, um, okay. maybe, you know, like, I mean, he was an agent, but the, maybe that was just me because like I am in my feelings about age disparities and everything, 
but it was like that was the mark thing that I that I felt, you know. So it's like he had a very pretty husband, right? Like a very attractive younger like who looked up to him, and it was just like, damn, you know, like. And then, but also he was just like physically destroyed from this. So I was like, okay, well, it's not just that, but even as he got, you know, clean. I mean, it was like still you could tell by the the kind of wasting that happens, you know, like with men who are thinner in their face. Like it was just clear, like he was older than his spouse. Um, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the age differential. Like you have two consenting adults, but it's like, I mean, I kind of want to know the backstory, how they met, what was it happening? Like, was it like, was he fanboying, you know, like, cause he was famous for a long right. time. So it's like, you know, but maybe, you know, there is this, this thing that, that, um, you know, deep. So, so the fact that I'm asking these kind of questions actually does speak to a lot to that storytelling and, and kind of exploring that in, in, um, relationships, like as far as like the, um, that in Hollywood, like we're okay with centering the stories of older men and, um, and, and younger partners unless on like say like okay here is this younger person navigating this power dynamic with somebody that they love right who has both power and age and privilege over them which i think is actually a very fascinating and interesting story because it's like you have to kind of come to terms with that figure out your own identity um you know and 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 try to be like okay like here is where my autonomy is and what i contribute to a relationship so that i mean i actually hope that it's not i mean and i'm pretty sure like the story is going to just really focus on um on the general as opposed to the partner but i'm just like much interested in the partner story because i mean he's the one that's like building him back up from being such a broken man you know so and what was lost in that. So there's a lot of complexity in that. It's just, you know, I mean, my whole thing of like, I guess, what is it? The um, September, what do they call those? The May, the May, the May fall. I mean, the, the spring fall romance. Yeah, the spring, spring fall romance, you know. I, I, I want to be clear about that. something, too, because I, I'm, I'm always, I'm constantly learning and relearning how to talk about gender, sex identity, right? And so mm-hmm. if anybody who is watching this um, who watches this feels like I have misstepped or anyway, feel free to comment and correct me. Um, but one of the things that I, same I want here. to make... Same here. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I will be... Oh, go ahead. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I think my, my connection is getting a little weird. But um, one of the reasons, one of the things that I wanted to make clear about, you know, there is no... There is no standard. The standard for masculinity is what we is what society has decided it is, and it is toxic. It is poisonous. What I was sort of alluding to was the fact that Bel Rios was, and, and by the way, his expression of his masculinity and his emotionality doesn't have anything necessarily to do with his homosexuality. I just meant that the convergence of those two things to me was very good writing. Um, it, it would be. It, and I like the fact that it wasn't centered on, on you know, cis hetero dude. It was a guy who mm-hmm. was gay. He loved his husband. He had the appropriate reaction to seeing his husband for the first time in six years and realizing he wasn't dead. He had the appropriate reaction to starting to sort of being rebuilt and shake off the trauma of living in prison for six years, but also the proximity to his husband. I liked that expression. I liked, and I, and I think that 
when I talk about heterosexuality and the, the, the equivalent, you know, expression, I think that we have a lot to learn from that particular seat, those segments. As cishet dudes, we can look at that and go, oh, wow, like, it's totally okay. Because most of us have had that impulse stripped of us, many times brutally. And so I think that that's why, one of the reasons why that scene spoke to me. I'm not, not to take away from your point, I, they're, they're parallel points, I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be clear about what I was saying about um, emotionality, gender, sex, identity, and, and how cishet dudes have been sort of corralled into this really weird way of thinking about themselves. Definitely. I mean, I do think that there is some, I mean, because in season one, you know, even looking at, you know, it's like Brother Don and his relationship arc and, um, you know, so you're, you're seeing a lot more nuance as far as like gender dynamics. But I think we could talk about um, something that you've really emphasized, right, is that that the black women are seen as kind of um, supporting characters in this larger story, in this this universe that they're in, and and they're not necessarily talking about that, you know, like it's or maybe that's like in the in the writing, it's like they're putting them at the forefront, but yet it's it's um like are they still in control of their fate? Like what is what is their role in this? Are they main characters? Are we going to um like what are we going to see with um with um oh gosh like you know gal and 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 her Salvador. daughter is <laughs> older than herself <laughs> yeah i mean I, i'm 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 i i i was initially content to chalk it up to dysfunction between harry and, and gail but what he does by restricting information to her is he deprives her, her of not only consent but agency and and I think that that portrayal is, it aggravates me. I can't, I can't say mm-hmm. for a certainty that it's harmful, but certainly it aggravates me that, that he is supposedly the, the, the voice of reason and truth in the future. But on the same hand, he's constantly, constantly boxing her in and then not really recognizing why she defies him so vehemently. In, in, in fact, if he had any real sense, again, this whole genius this whole genius torture genius thing, right? If he if he was really a genius, right? Psychohistory, part of psychohistory is psychology. And if he were really a genius, he would look at that and say, you know what? Maybe if I was more open with her and trusted her with the truth about the future, which he's gonna she's gonna glean anyway, maybe this whole thing would probably move a little bit smoother. Mm-hmm. That's my thinking. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't really come across as like, I mean, it's like as benevolent. No. You know, like it's just like even even in the other, you know, like the real real one, you know, like it's just like the the So, so I'm kind of I'm a little bit torn, but you know what got me and maybe I'm just petty or maybe I am just You are petty. very vain. But if you were going to reconstitute my consciousness Right now, like if my consciousness was existing in this computer here and you're going to put me back in a human body, if you're going to put me back to 48-year-old Marguerite, I would right. be pissed. I right. would be like, no, <laughs> you're going to give me 21-year-old Agreed. Marguerite at my peak. Agreed. Agreed. You know, I'm like, what the hell, man? 100% what the hell? agreed. That took me out the story. 
<laughs> I will say I, even, I, I even my digital form, my digital form. John, you make an AI Marguerite 